All right, I don't think they can ring that triangle any louder. So thank you for coming back uh, into the room. And if you have any friends who are still uh, looking at the exhibits, I hope you'll encourage them to come back in. This is our third grouping uh, of the day. I think you remember this morning the way I laid this out and the way I'm hoping we'll all be thinking about this is thinking about the future from the foresight section that we talked about uh, early in the morning, uh, thinking about some of the opportunities and challenges as we think about that context and how it's uh, evolving. And you've heard, including in this last discussion, just a really strong sense of change and difference in the world. And to some extent, whether with optimism or with some skepticism, our ability to try and address that change and think about things in new ways uh, so that we can become better uh, at leading uh, in that world. And that's what this session uh, is very much about, really thinking about new approaches to thinking about uh, strategy writ large, but many of the challenges and opportunities that face us uh, in this very much changing world. So we've got a, a really, really interesting panel uh, that I hope will stimulate some thinking uh, in this area. Oops, and I forgot. i got to do one thing uh, before we get to, to this panel. I promised, even though the debate was less of a debate than a dialogue and a discussion. Uh, we did hold a vote afterwards uh, to see uh, whether people were more swayed by what David Rothkopf said, what uh, Corey Shockey said, uh, or were undecided in between. Uh, and it's pretty much an even split. I mean, theoretically, uh, and I can say this because David has left, so he won't take it too, um, too much, 43% uh, for David, 40% uh, for Corey, Undecided, 17%. Uh, I would say that's all pretty much within the uh, margin of error, and it sounds like we had a pretty even split, again, on a discussion that was had a lot of overlap, although some distinctly different recommendations uh, and approaches. Uh, I think the undecided is very interesting. 17% undecided. That's the unchanged, by the way, from coming in. And I would love it if those of you who, who voted undecided uh, would tell us why in some way or, for, or, or format uh, before you leave. Either come talk to us and tell us why you're undecided, both before and after the discussion, uh, or send us a message uh, via social media. Uh, I think that would actually be something really interesting to explore uh, a little bit more. Back to our third group, again, thinking about new ways uh, and new approaches for thinking about strategy and thinking about how to deal with the challenges and opportunities. We've got a really interesting group for you, and we purposely pulled this particular group uh, together. We hope to uh, wrap up the day's discussions uh, before our keynote address uh, with some stimulating thinking. First off, uh, we've got Max Brooks. Uh, Max, uh, many of you will know Max in different uh, guises. I, will, I know Max now as uh, one of the people I'm, I'm particularly fortunate to have an opportunity opportunity uh, to work with here as the council. Max has joined us at the council as a non-resident uh, senior fellow. A few of you might recognize his name from a book called World War Z, uh, which he authored, uh, and which really, uh, it, I know at least in my own little geeky wonky community, created an incredible buzz, uh, not just because it was a great fun novel to read, but because it was really uh, thought-provoking. And I know at least uh, I did and some of my friends were always wondering whether it was intentional or or whether it was just one of those great uh, serendipitous uh, flukes of good fiction uh, producing uh, stimulating thought. Uh, and uh, it's been both uh, exciting for me uh, and interesting for me to have an opportunity to, to work a little bit with Max and understand how intentional it very much was uh, and how much Max thinks about and cares about these types of issues. And so I think you're really going to be uh, interested in what he has to say uh, to us today. Uh, his fiction has really uh, raised awareness on a number of different issues from 
from preparedness and resilience and readiness and thinking uh, about the future and planning and preparing. And Max has some really interesting thoughts uh, to raise to us uh, to think about uh, how we as a nation can think about foreign policy uh, and global issues uh, in, uh, in a broader, more holistic uh, manner. I'm also very pleased and proud to introduce my friend Beth Flores, uh, who will be speaking to us uh, as well. Uh, Beth, uh, once upon a time, worked uh, in the Defense Department. She was one of the people who tried very hard from the inside out uh, to change many of the processes uh, and the systems in the Defense Department. She has since gone out of the Defense Department and has undertaken a, a rather uh, remarkable career uh, and to me very fascinating, interesting work in promoting social entrepreneurship, uh, building a social entrepreneur uh, ecosystem in the Washington uh, DC area and pursuing, uh, I think I can correctly say, her passion in uh, exploring the role uh, of storytelling and narrative uh, in thinking about uh, how to think about uh, foreign policy and global affairs. So I think you'll hear some continuation uh, of that discussion uh, as well. And then joining the two of them, we have Mr. Rob Weiss, uh, who's Executive Vice President and General Manager uh, of Skunk Works uh, at Lockheed Martin. Many of you, I'm sure, have uh, heard, or at least in whispered voices, uh, about uh, Skunk Works. And Rob will be talking to us a little bit about how that type of an entity, even inside as big an organization uh, and as storied and historic an organization uh, as Lockheed, uh, can bring new thinking, uh, innovation, and new thoughts uh, as challenges and changes uh, emerge in front of us. So you can hear a bit of a common theme here, but from very different perspectives. Uh, I think it's going to be particularly fascinating. Uh, it's going to be particularly interesting to see how uh, we pull those threads together, which is why we have Josh Marcuse here. Uh, to be moderator, uh, and you've seen the roles that our moderators have played before. We're going to ask Josh to do that again, uh, but uh, on an even more interesting and diverse set of topics to pull these together uh, and uh, help us understand how this has to do with thinking differently uh, about uh, dealing with world challenges uh, and opportunities. Uh, as well as obviously getting you all involved uh, in this discussion as well. Uh, Josh is uh, currently Senior Advisor for Policy Innovation, so this is very much in his wheelhouse in the Office of the Secretary of Defense and leads the Office of the Secretary of Defense on policy design and innovation practices. Uh, so Josh has been doing some uh, very challenging work, I'll characterize it, uh, inside uh, the Pentagon. Uh, Josh has also been working uh, quite closely with us here at the Atlantic Council uh, in a couple of different uh, guises. Uh, Josh is also on the board of the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. Defense Entrepreneurs Forum is an organization we're very pr uh, pleased and proud to host as an incubation, incubation effort uh, here at the Atlantic Council based on a competition they won with us uh, last year uh, and very much uh, espouses the spirit uh, of innovation uh, and particularly ground up innovation that uh, I think you're hearing a lot of uh, here today uh, as well. Josh is also a founding member uh, and a key leader in the Young Professionals in Foreign Policy Organization and I just wanted to give him a shout out uh, on that as well. Uh, YPFP has been quite collaborative with us as we seek, as I told you at the beginning of today, to seek new voices uh, from new up and coming professionals in the field. And we're very pleased to be able to work uh, with them, especially through our Millennium Leadership uh, Program, which many of you may be uh, well aware of. And if you're not, please uh, let us know. We'd like to, to get you involved. So with all of that advertising out of the way uh, and me speaking too long again, uh, here's our third group uh, and we will start with uh, Max Brooks. Uh, let me pre-apologize to anything offensive I might say. Uh, 
It's happened. Poor, poor Dan, when, I, when we spoke three months ago, he's like, I just, I'd like to look at what you're going to say, maybe, before you say it. Uh, that ain't going to happen, because what I'm going to start with is, is an event that happened when I was a little bit younger, and, and I was just starting to make my career. I'd just gotten a job on Saturday Night Live. I was a writer. It, my career was taking off, and I thought, oh my god, I'm here in New York City on September 10th, 2001. What could possibly go wrong? Well, we all know what went wrong. But what affected me as much, if not more, than the attack of 9-11 was America's response. When I watched the American commander in chief say, most of you out there Citizens of this country are asking, what can I do? Well, here's what you can do. Pray, hug your kids, and participate in the economy. You cannot blame him for that. Believe me, because all he was doing at that time was reflecting the national will. And this is what I'm going to talk to you about, is for 50 years, we have watched a crack widen into a Grand Canyon in between the American people and those tasked with protecting them. And like all roads to hell, this one was good intentions. Started in the 1950s when we got rid of war bonds. Not a big deal, Korea was an unpopular war, it was a tiny war, America was flush with cash, don't burden the American people, no problem, good intention. But what it did was it removed an essential link between the common citizen and the larger issues that go back to our war of independence. Gone. After Vietnam, we got rid of the draft. Good. We had to at the time. At least that's what we thought. The draft was tearing this country apart. And the military was in support of it too. Why not have a leaner, meaner army of volunteer professionals? Great idea. But what it did was it removed the uniformed services from the American people. Now, in the 1990s, you started to hear after the end of the Cold War about streamlining and efficiency, and that was the whole thing, was we've got these big bloated government bureaucracies. We should privatize them, you know, farm them out, because the private sector does things more efficiently. Well, yes and no. What the private sector does efficiently is make a profit. That's their job. And most of the time, it's in line with the will of the American people, but what happens when you get someone in the private sector who realizes that the needs of his or her company and the needs of the American people are in different directions. At the same time, you also got a huge schism in American media. And that's one thing I'll come back to. But as a result, you had this American people who were completely insulated and isolated from the thinking class from the people like you who wake up every day and think about big issues and how, what are the big issues, how are we going to analyze them, how are we going to solve them. You're over here, they're over here, the other 99.9%. .9 and you know what? If we lived in a totalitarian regime, fine, no problem. But we don't. We live in a republic. We live in a place where those 99% of the people who have been told to pray and hug their kids and go to the mall, vote for everybody else, for the people that protect them. 
And as a result, you now have the thinking class, you have these people tasked with protecting the American people having to explain and justify their jobs. Can you imagine if an American president said today, we are going to do something so grandiose and so big, and we choose to do this not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Can you imagine that? A person would lose their job right away, or at least the person in the press office recommending that would lose their job. This is the problem we're facing today, is the American voter has been so insulated and isolated that 50% of them are now ready to elect a reality TV star. This is the issue that we're dealing with now. And it trickles down into every level of government, every level of the military. It all comes back to the fact of, we don't want to upset or bother the American people. And yet we must. In the 1990s, one of the biggest shows was Seinfeld. And it was about nothing. And that was fine. Because at that point, America was about nothing. The problem is, we are now living in incredibly consequential times, but still have that 90s mentality. You all just stay safe over here. We got this. Well, you don't. We need to re-engage the American people. We need to let them know what's going on around them and give them the tools so they can make the right decisions at the ballot box to affect them. Well, how do we do that? Well, for one thing, we need to re-engage the media. This is, this is my wheelhouse. This is where I come from. Now, and what I know coming from a media background is the one thing you don't want to do is beat them over the head. You know, you don't want to just come at them with a big Oliver Stone club and be like, these are the issues you must understand. Because that triggers what's called the ego defense mechanism. And we all have it. That's that little trigger in our brain to keep us from going crazy. So if we're confronted with something that's too complicated or too scary, we tune out. So you can't just come at them with this didactic bullhorn. There, but there are other ways to do it. Now, I'm old enough to remember a time when the science fiction community dealt with real issues. In fact, that's why we had a science fiction community in the 1960s and 70s. It was a way of dealing with very important, scary, controversial issues wrapped up in a cocoon that allowed people to still deal with it. Every episode of the old Star Trek was about something. Every episode of Star Trek The Next Generation that I grew up on was about something. And what that was is it gave people the chance to look at it, deal with it, and then make those connections voluntarily out in the real world. It was a wonderful way of educating. Not anymore. We need to get back to that. Comedy was another great way. I don't know about you guys, but I learned more about American politics from stand-up comedians than I did from any of my teachers. You know, when Dave Chappelle called American money baseball cards for slave owners, wow, did that wake me up. Lenny Bruce, Richard Pryor, and to this day, Louis C.K. still does it. South Park still does it. There are ways to make people laugh. You go, oh, that's funny. And then an hour later, or maybe a day or a, week, a year later, you go, oh, wow, that was actually really profound. So we need to do that. We need to find ways. And it doesn't have to be the direct approach. If you were uh, a historian 100 years from now, and you wanted to go back and look at 9-11 just from the point of view of, say, the TV show Friends, biggest show in America that took place in New York, 
9-11 never happened. Not one episode dealt with 9-11. None of the TV shows did. None of the songs did. If you want to look at the top 100 songs in the year after 9-11, they had titles like No Shirt, No Shoes, No Problem, It Feels So Empty Without Me, and I'm Feeling Pretty Good, So Let's Keep On Dancing. There are ways to deal with these issues subtly. Now, those of you who are my age, I'm in my 40s or older, remember what used to be called a very special episode. And that was no matter what sitcom you had, there was a very special episode that dealt with something happening in the world around you. Or jokes were about the world around you. If you want to know about the social upheaval of the 1970s, you don't need to read some giant history book. Just watch All in the Family. Every episode dealt with something. Not today. So what we need to do is instead of just staying in the cocoon of the thinking class, we need to reach out to the genuine mouthpieces of the time. And not propaganda. You don't need to take a side on the issues for or against. But I do believe very strongly that people in this country who have a platform for the citizenry have moral obligations as citizens to at least acknowledge the issues around them. Because not only are we a democracy, we are the leader of the free world. We are responsible for a lot that happens in this world, and our populace doesn't even know about it. So we need to reach out to these people who make media so our citizens at least know there are three different kinds of Iraqistanis. They need to at least understand that there's something called ISIS. And we do need to understand where countries are and why countries are there and why they happen. I see one guy in a foreign uniform. Where are you from? Yes. All right, well, there we go. We should at least acknowledge that France is a NATO partner. And there's something more important to that. Uh, you great wine and cheese, yes. But you know, we hear that a lot. Oh, France, we saved their ass in World War II. Yeah, we saved their ass in World War II. And we did. They saved our ass in the revolution. And if you doubt that, there's an amazing play on Broadway now called Hamilton, which is a perfect <laughs> example of what I'm talking about. <laughs> Hamilton is the perfect example. When I was there, by the way, you don't want to know who I shanked in the throat to get a ticket to Hamilton. It was packed. And it wasn't just packed with the thinking class. People from all over the country wanted to see this. And they came out learning about a guy named Lafayette. They learned about this system and why it works and why we have it. We need more Hamiltons. We need more all in the families. We need more special episodes. We need more education in our media. It cannot just be to tune out. It can also be to tune in. That's what I'm here to talk about. And that's why I'm going to give up the next five minutes to let somebody else come on. So thank you for listening. You know, it's funny. I wasn't sure I was going to end on for 10 years when we were fighting at least two wars. And um, you know, my small but personal attempts to fend off cynicism about what was going on in the world and how we were approaching it um, 
which led me to a very strong belief that I hold today, which is that we need a more humane and human-centered approach to policymaking and global strategy. Um, but first, with these bright lights shining on me, I think my father is watching in Arizona, and I'm supposed to give him a signal. <laughs> um, anyway, you know, I like to joke with my friends um, that if I ever wrote a book about my time at the Pentagon, it was going to be called Unrequited, One Woman's Quest to Find Love at the Pentagon. <laughs> and this was not going to be a racy tell-all about my romantic misadventures, although I'm pretty sure that would sell more copies. Um, this was going to be about my attempts to find this more compassionate way to approach the very complex problems that we were dealing with in the world. Um, for me, this started in an office of detainee affairs. Uh, it was 2004 in the fall. I was very, it was my first assignment in the Pentagon. I was a newly minted presidential management fellow. Uh, Barry actually was my first boss. Um, and my job, you know, this office, by the way, was started right after Abu Ghraib, who coordinate the viewpoints of other stakeholder groups across the department to recommend a decision about each and every Guantanamo detainee about whether this person should be fresh out of grad school was to read these files. And you know, the files were thin. You know, there wasn't a lot of information that we had on these guys. And I, who um, am the daughter of a lawyer, hi dad, um, you know, grew up with this idea of justice. Um, that you know, was grounded in a principle of innocent until proven guilty. And so coming face to face with this um, other definition of justice was shocking to me and, and difficult to turn down or turn off this part of me that had deep compassion for the people who came across my inbox you know, over those 10 years, good and bad. I'm talking about detainees. I'm talking about... Afghan farmers. I spent four months in Afghanistan with then General Eikenberry. Um, talking about injured soldiers. I'm talking about pirates. Talking about refugees. And I learned that in government, we dealt with humanity in broad strokes as categories of people, not individuals. It was time, sadness, and confusion. And uh, sometimes, frankly, even a little bit of shame about you know, one issue or the other. But outwardly, I was on all the time. I was resolute. I was doing my job. I was kicking ass. I was learning how to drive change in the Pentagon. But I instinctively felt that there should be a way to approach policymaking that was more holistic that took into account more fully the perspectives of the people we were trying to serve, whether they were uh, recipients of aid or um, you know, elected officials across the aisle or our bureaucratic counterparts across the river. And I wanted uh, to, to fully participate in these issues, to deal with policy not as an abstraction, but as a set of decisions that had real and felt consequences uh, you know, where we made those decisions. You know, I didn't just want to um, hear about collateral damage. I, I wanted to know the numbers, and I wanted to see the faces. 
And not just because it would round out my understanding of the policy issues at stake, but I believed that our inability or unwillingness to address this side of the conflict actually under columnists to come to the Pentagon. And some of you may have actually been in the room. This was back in 2011. So um, I met David at the Aspen Institute. He had just written a book called The Social Animal, which if you haven't read it, is about, um, he surveyed years of brain science and brain research and found that um, more, or at least as much of our decision making takes place in our subconscious mind the domain of emotions and intuition, and that it's from there that we actually kind of make sense of what's going on. So, um, you know, I reread parts of The Social Animal in preparation for this talk. And in the introduction to the book, I learned that one of the reasons that David Brooks wrote that book was uh, because he had a similar question or kind of instinct that I had. And I'm going to read what he wrote here. He said, I confess I got pulled into this subject of brain science in hopes of answering more limited and practical questions. Over the past generations, we have seen big policies yield disappointing results. The failures have been marked by a single feature reliance on an overly simplistic view of human nature. And many of the policies were proposed, he says, by wonks who are comfortable only with traits and correlations that can be measured and quantified. They were passed through legislative committees that are as capable of speaking about the deep wellsprings of human action as they are of speaking in ancient Aramaic. And they will continue to fail unless the new knowledge about our true makeup is integrated more fully into the world of public policy, unless the enchanted story is told along with the prosaic one. So there's a funny story I have about that day with David Brooks. We were in the undersecretary's you know, formal conference room. And he, towards the end, he looked out across the room. And he sees the presidential seal on the wall and the world clock telling us exactly what time it was in Baghdad and New York and Paris. Um, and he looks out at the suits kind of staring back at him. And he says, I bet I'm the first person to say the word love in this place. <laughs> so I felt like I had succeeded. Um, and that's pretty much what kicked it off for me, this inquiry into whether we were missing something crucial by coming at the deeply complex challenges in the world with quite literally half of our brains. So three years later, I still feel that unrequited is an apt title for a book about the current state of our policymaking. We haven't yet figured out how to lead with integrity. Uh, and what I mean by that is not you know, honesty or truth telling, I mean wholeness, this idea of uh, combining our right and left brains, our analytical minds with our emotional ones, our power with our vulnerability. So, so now what? Where do we go from here? Um, you know, as Dan mentioned, I have been out of the Pentagon for about three and a half years. This is like I'm shocked the suit still fits. Um, I haven't worn one in a while. Um, but if I've made any progress uh, in answering this question, it's been by looking outside of the community of experts that we traditionally rely on and finding the wisdom of creatives. The poets and the philosophers, the writers and the musicians, and the designers and the entrepreneurs. And I spent the last year leading this 
uh, social enterprise incubator where I was immersed in the lives and life of an entrepreneur. So I have a few ideas that I'll toss out to the crowd. Um, the first one is just have the conversation like we're doing today. You know, back in that job in detainee affairs, I felt that I was presented with a binary choice between justice and security. And it was clear to me, although unspoken, I think, um, which side I was supposed to be on. But this is a false choice. It's, it's overly simplistic, and yet we constantly rely on these kind of binary frameworks in policy. Um, it should not be necessary for whole departments or, frankly, whole governments to choose one side or one perspective on an issue. Um, I'd like to think we can come up with a way to not just talk about issues, but embrace them in a, a both and context and really master the art of nuance. And to get there, we just have to start by talking about it and, and, and not allowing ourselves to get by with simplicity. Um, second, I'd like to think we can come up with ways to evoke the subconscious in the way that David Brooks wrote about with poetry and music and storytelling. Um, I found this great quote from a National Humanities Medal recipient, Krista Tippett. She has a show on NPR. Um, and she said that we have to rid ourselves of the antiseptic language that puts our human dramas in political and economic boxes and holds us at arm's length from the heart of the matter. You know, poetry, I think, is a good place to start and probably the last place I would have ever looked. Um, Elizabeth Alexander, uh, who was the poet laureate of the United States when Obama was inaugurated in 2009, um, you know, she was only the fourth poet to ever stand beside a president at the inauguration. Um, and she asked a question that I, you know, went back to and realized how uh, precisely it foreshadowed the challenges that we would be asked to rise to um, in Aleppo and Baghdad as well as Ferguson and Baltimore. And she wrote, what if the mightiest word is love? Love beyond marital, filial, national. Love that casts a widening pool of light. Love with no need to preempt grievance. And now I'm thinking maybe I'm the first person to say love here. Um, anyway, she should not be the last poet who stands beside a president or any political leader. You know, why don't we commission great works of poetry or art with us at all of our nationally momentous occasions or even our ordinary ones? And third, uh, I think we need to make more room for new approaches to policy that are rooted in empathy uh, that's another word that's come up a lot today, like design thinking. So the most convicted stand, the biggest bet that I made when I was at the Pentagon, was convincing my bosses to import design thinking from some of the leading companies in the world. And I, I got my boss to send me out to Stanford to get educated in this methodology, um, which causes us or asks us to walk in the shoes of the people who we are trying to serve, to really get under the skin and out of the heads, you know, into the um, deepest sources of meaning to design products and services, but also strategies to serve these people. 
And I'm happy to say that design thinking has gained a foothold in the, United, in the government. And you see, um, not just in the Pentagon, uh, in the ways that Josh is working on it, but really all across the government. Um, and the question that I wanted to leave you with, you know, David Rothkopf said we have to come up with new questions. So here's one. Um, how might we redesign policymaking so that it is more holistic, more human-centered, so that it draws upon our analytical and our intuitive wisdom? And you know, now that I'm nearing the end of this talk, I can admit that I was uh, nervous about bringing this subject to this audience. And then I found uh, something that the philosopher Hannah Arendt had written. And she said, the world is not humane just because it is made by human beings. And it does not become humane just because the human voice sounds in it, but only when it has become the object of discourse. We humanize what is going on in the world and in ourselves only by speaking of it. And in the course of speaking of it, we learn to be human. So for the past few years, I've been engaged in this kind of steady, quiet inquiry, um, not knowing that I was heeding the advice of another poet, Rilke, who said, you know, live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday far in the future, you will gradually, without even knowing it, live your way into the answer. Um, You've all given me a chance to do this. I'm very grateful, and I hope I've given you something to think about. Thanks. Well, hello, and good afternoon. Um, you know, I was uh, checking my uh, calendar function on my watch this morning, and I noticed that Exactly one month from uh, today, it'll be 40 years since I graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy, 50 years, 50 miles down the road in Annapolis. So I thought about that. I've, been, I've spent virtually my entire adult life involved in national defense. Um, I had the great honor to serve as an officer in the U.S. Navy. I've uh, had the uh, exhilarating experience to fly jet airplanes off aircraft carriers. And I've uh, spent a number of years as an executive at Lockheed Martin um, involved in designing, developing, and producing some of the world's most uh, iconic military aircraft. But also through those uh, 40 years, I've also been a student of leadership. Um, I've read widely about uh, great leaders. I've watched and listened to great leaders, and I've worked hard to to understand what it takes to be a great leader, and I continue to do that every day. And for the last uh, three years, my classroom has been the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, or our Advanced Development Programs Organization. So I've had the opportunity to lead some very creative and independent-minded engineers who have set great goals on uh, solving critical national security issues. And frankly, these are a group of people who do not accept that something cannot be done, presuming it's within the laws of physics, of course. But uh, they, they set these goals and expect to achieve them. They like to operate in small groups. They like to be given the parameters of a project, the 
cost, uh, the budget, the schedule, and the expected capability of the system. And then they like to be trusted and left alone to basically go get the job done with minimum oversight. Um, they are willing, they always are pushing the edge of technology. They are not afraid to take risk. They are not afraid to fail. And sometimes they do fail, and when they fail, they try again until they figure it out and get it right. They like to build prototype aircraft and fly prototype aircraft to uh, design a little, test a little, and learn a lot in the process. So those are some of the things I've learned in my classroom at Skunk Works over the last three years. Um, I've also learned as I've looked back on, on our programs that have been successful over the years, there's really three very simple but key ingredients that have resulted in the success of these programs. Uh, number one is a, is a shared vision between the, the government and, and the Skunk Works. And oftentimes these are very bold visions, uh, very, very lofty objectives to solve critical national security issues. Number two is uh, a mutual trust. So there's an expectation on the government side and on the Skunk Works side that the vision, achieving the objective was paramount. And that there would be challenges along the way but those would be resolved by some give and take uh, between the government and, and the Skunk Works. And thirdly is courage. Uh, courage basically being an acknowledgement, a tolerance for risk in pushing the technology uh, envelope and recognizing that uh, not everything is going to go well in a major development program where you're pushing the limits of technology and it would take courage on both the government and the Skunk Works side to push through and persevere and solve those technological challenges. So these are the things I've learned at the Skunk Works over the last few years. And, and I'd like to illustrate those lessons a little bit for you with a story about an airplane called Lulu Bell, the XP-80. This was the, uh, the first Skunk Works project. So Max recognizes it. And um, so in, back in uh, summer of 1943, the US learned that the Germans were ready to field the ME-262 jet fighter. And of course, we were flying, the US and allies were flying piston-driven propeller aircraft at the time. And so it would be formidable to face the ME-262. So the US Air Force and the, and the Skunk Works set a bold vision. We were going to develop the first US jet fighter. So Kelly Johnson, who was a designer at Lockheed, he designed the P-38, which was a piston-driven propeller airplane, but one of the most, you know, one of the deadliest uh, fighter aircraft to World War II. So Kelly, he made a proposal to General Frank Carroll, who was the commander of Wright Field in Dayton, and he said, I will build the XP-80 airplane in 180 days, six months. And General Carroll, he took him up on this offer. He agreed. And Kelly immediately said, well, sir, when will I receive my contract? And when exactly does the time start? And uh, General Carroll came back and said, Kelly, you'll have a contract at 1330 this afternoon. And uh, the time and, and the, there's an airplane that leaves Dayton 
at 1400 to Burbank, and the time starts then. So talk about some real trust. You know, General Carroll had trust in his team, trust in Kelly to be able to turn a contract within a few hours, essentially. And sure enough, at 1330, when Kelly got on that airplane, he had a contract uh, signed by none other than uh, General Hap Arnold to build the first U.S. fighter, the XP-80. Now, Kelly, when he got back to Burbank, he was reminded by the president of Lockheed at the time, Robert Gross, Kelly, the, the facility is full. You know, we're building 28 fighters and bombers per day to support, to support the war effort. But, you know, Gross, who had uh, been lobbied by Kelly in the past to build an experimental shop and uh, had a lot of confidence in Kelly and had the courage to push forward on, against the potential risk of, of focusing the plan on building this fighter airplane, gave Kelly approval. So Kelly, nine days later, had gone around and pulled the best engineers he could find across the company, 23 engineers, 97 production artisans and purchasers and support personnel, set up shop in a circus tent on the edge of the field because the, the buildings were full. And that's where the, the skunk works actually began on the 17th of June, 1943. And uh, remember the 180 days. So from the day Kelly got that, uh, that contract from General Hap Arnold, 143 days later, 37 days ahead of schedule, the XP-80 was de delivered to the U.S. Air Force for first flight. So that's where, about that time, the Skunk Works culture began to, to take hold. And since then, we've, uh, we've continued to do a lot of uh, programs like the XP-80 across the Skunk Works. Actually, Kelly Johnson put in place 14 rules that uh, provided the framework for what the Skunk Works culture is all about. And those 14 rules are strongly in place today, and, and we continue to apply them on all the programs we have today, and have been applied along with this idea of, of mutual trust, of, of a shared vision with the government, and a, and a courage to push the en envelope of technology as we've de de delivered some of the uh, most game-changing capabilities in support of our nation. Programs such as the U-2 spy plane that is still operational today, designed in the 50s by 50 engineers. Um, program go ahead to first flight, eight months. The SR-71 Blackbird that is still the highest flying, fastest surveillance airplane ever. Threw it, flew at Mach 3.3, 85,000 feet. And don't think we didn't have a lot of challenging technological issues to deal with there, with that too, at those speeds and temperatures. Uh, the first stealth fighter, the F-117, years before it actually flew, this notion of being able to fly against Soviet radars and survive uh, was put in place, a bold vision. And then that night on, uh, before the first uh, F-117 flew in Desert Storm in 1991 and a young pilot sitting in the cockpit said, I sure hope this stealth stuff works. And sure enough, it worked. And the F-117, 3% of the total force structure serviced more than 40% of the 
most challenging targets in, uh, in Iraq. And uh, from there, we went to the, X the YF-22, the X-35B. And um, from there, I can tell you there's a lot of programs similar to those going on today at the Skunk Works that, um, frankly, I can't tell you about. But maybe one of my successors years from now will be able to stand up here and tell you about some of the things we're doing today. But, um, but look, at this, this presentation was not meant to be an advertisement about the Skunk Works. Uh, what I really wanted to do was highlight the potential of innovation. And, uh, you know, here at the Atlantic Council, the idea of strategy uh, and what should our strategy be, I, I would submit to you that one of the key elements of our national strategy should be to choose innovation, to bet on the ingenuity of America, to push forward on the envelope of innovation. You know, there's a great thirst in the country today for innovation and innovating at a much, much more rapid cycle than we are today. The, uh, the government has established a few program offices, the Rapid Capability Office in the Air Force, the, the uh, Strategic Capability Office in, in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and recently the Navy established the Maritime Advanced Capability Office. Industry has the Skunk Works, the Phantom Works, the Liberty Works, and other kinds of works that really are all about innovation and accelerating the pace of innovation. So I think that that is really what our challenge is all about today. Um, you know, I, I mentioned I'm a student of leadership, and I want to tell you what I've really learned about our, our people. Number one, we have some very uh, creative people who are are committed to what they do. They have great imagination and, and uh, you know, what it takes to actually achieve what they imagine. Um, they have proven technologies. They have developed uh, very promising technologies. And we talk about the need for engineers and scientists in our country. I will tell you that we have engineers and scientists that we can attract to ADP into the Skunk Works at any time if we can give them inspiring challenges to solve the nation's most demanding issues. And what these folks are looking for is strong leadership in both government and industry. Leaders who will embrace the idea of mutual trust between government and industry. Leaders who have the courage to push forward the, the uh, bounds of technology and leaders who have the vision to showcase American exceptionalism and to unleash the power of, the Ameri of America's innovation engine. So I'm very uh, honored to be with, here with all of you today at the Atlantic Council. All of you are some of the top leaders in, in uh, policy and technology and the arts and in defense. And I think all of us as leaders, we have a responsibility to demonstrate trust between government and industry, to uh, demonstrate our, our uh, courage to push forth on technology and our, and our, uh, our vision to, to move forward to the future. So I would, uh, I would like to ask all of you to uh, let's rekindle the will to accelerate the, piece of innovation, or the pace of innovation 
through bold, brave, and courageous leadership. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, all three of you, for what I think were ex extremely different perspectives that really, I think, come down to the one question, which is, it really, in each of these situations, is about people, whether it's about the need to regain trust, it's about tapping into the, as Beth was saying, the, you know, the, the instincts and the intuition and the, um, and the emotional connection to the issues that our decision makers and our policy makers need to have, or figuring out how to have that same difficult conversation with the voter. As Max underscored, I think what we're seeing today is really as we look to innovation solutions, we need to first look to people, whether that's a human-centered design approach, or it's an engineering issue, or it's a question of how to really reach people through art and media and expression. At the end of the day, what I took away from these three presentations was there's no escaping the reality that we're human beings trying to make decisions in an increasingly complex world. And whether it's a decision of who to vote for, or how to get a new technology into the air, or how to make a decision about a detainee, um, we really ignore those facts at our peril. So I thought that was incredibly powerful and also inspiring. So thank you. Let me, let me key in on a couple specific issues that I thought were particularly interesting that I, that I wanted to get at. And first was, you know, Max, one concern that, that I had about your remarks was, you know, you really underscored the importance of engaging the American public in a zeitgeist that will prepare them for citizenship. And I felt the underscoring message is, look, democracy, it's not easy, citizenship is hard, and, and we as a culture aren't, aren't inviting people into the public discourse. But my concern is, everything that I've seen in the last 10 years suggests that actually we simply have two hermetically sealed and separate zeitgeist in this country, and that actually people are voracious consumers of the media that simply tells them that they're right. And that the challenge is not that we aren't engaged, is that what we're engaging with is quite toxic. And so can you, can you comment on that? I mean, how do we have one generative, healthy democratic conversation instead of the dialogue that led to, as you referenced, a reality TV star who's got a good shot at the White House? Well, no, I mean, I, I, think, I think a lot of, the, of those bubbles were created post-1960s, 1970s. And, and I think those of us who are old enough to remember how traumatic those, those decades were when we tore ourselves apart. And I think there was a, a conscious choice on the level of the uh, baby boomers when they all turned 30 and started having families and mortgages. And they pulled back and said, I don't want the kind of chaos that was so exciting when I was a kid. Now I'm a parent, and my instinct is to protect. And so that's why you have such a withdrawal that we're still living in today. I mean, I saw it on SNL when we were begging to go political uh, after 9-11 in the, in the run-up to Iraq. And we were told it was a downer, the, the notion that somehow politics is a downer. Well, the result was. We dropped the ball, and the man who picked it up was an up-and-coming guy named John Stewart, who managed to engage the American people in a funny, interesting, exciting way. And he set the tone that some comedians like John Oliver are still doing to this day. So yes, you can do it. But I think it's a very baby boomer, Gen Xer, millennial response that if a problem is hard and scary, don't go near it. And, and I just that is, that is not who we can afford to be in a democracy. 
So I, I don't think we can be afraid of that. I think another problem has been political correctness, which is toxic in the democratic process because we are a multi-ethnic, multi-racial uh, nation. We, we are this group of different tribes all coming together, trying to live together. And we can't have open and honest dialogues with each other and learn from each other if we're all worried about offending. And as someone who offends for a living uh, without meaning to, that's the only way I'm going to learn. So, so I, I do think a lot of it is, is institutionalized knee-jerk reaction from the 60s and the 70s. But I think the lesson we should have taken from those decades is discourse and sometimes violent discourse, unfortunately, is the occupational hazard of democracy. If you don't want that, if you want a polite, calm society, look no farther than North Korea. So a quick, a quick follow-up on that. I mean, one of the things that I have seen as an innovative solution that government has been trying to do is trying to use some of the media where you've really excelled and defined your career to try to reach people. Things like um, you know, health and human services using comic books oh, to yeah. try to talk about education, things like that. And I also wonder, you know, what could the Department of Education be doing to try to reach um, these millennial, post-millennial Gen Z audiences? So my question is, you know, do you think government's capable of doing that well um, on their own? And if not, what kind of partnerships do you think we need as a society to try to get those messages across? I think it's a little bit of both. I think there are moments when government agencies uh, can hit it out of the park. Uh, the Center for Disease Control has a zombie plan. Now, obviously, it is not a real zombie plan, but somebody in a very dark, dank, underfunded office somewhere hit up on the idea that how do you prepare the American people for quarantine? Well, if you say the word quarantine, people are going to tune you right out and then go watch HBO's Girls. So what do you do? Well, you don't call it a quarantine. You call it a zombie plague. And the day that that, that page went up, it crashed the CDC server. That's how excited people were to learn about the zombie preparedness. But it's just a metaphor. And I think that that's a great example that other agencies can learn from. But I do think you do have to partner. You, you have to partner with Hollywood. And we used to be really good at that. My son has uh, Disney rarities, these old Disney uh, cartoons from the 1940s. And half of them are literally training films for the military. And the other half are for ex teaching the American people about what life is like in wartime. I don't, I don't know if you guys know this. There's, there's a great Disney cartoon about what happened in the 1940s when suddenly there was gas rationing. How do, how do you get to work when you don't have enough gas in your car? And it had a little history lesson about how highways were expanding, cars were expanding, and then suddenly, December 8, 1941, it all ended. So how do we change our thinking? And it was brilliant. So I think we can learn examples from history. And we have great examples from history. What, what you're talking about, this is not new. This is the Marshall Plan. This is the democratization of Japan. This is the Peace Corps. This is what Kennedy decided when he said, look, we need Americans to go around the world and say, hey, there's an alternative to communism. It's called the Peace Corps. So I think we can have an amazing lessons of history of how to look to the future. So Beth, I don't want to interfere with your coming book deal, but I think <laughs> that I think that uh, having worked in the Pentagon in the years after you did, it would be hard to say that the love is really unrequited. We <laughs> we we love you a lot, Beth. But um, but what I think what really um, engenders some of that some of that anxiety or frustration when you brought in people like David Brooks <clears throat> is that essentially what you're saying is that the rational actor model of decision making that is the bedrock of how we make choices life and death choices is deeply flawed. 
and in fact leads to the wrong decisions. And that, un I think, threatens to upend the, the foundation on which the Pentagon is built. And really, not only DOD, but the whole system, it rests on that. And it occurs to me that one reason, perhaps, why we are so attached to this rational actor model is that it lets us off the hook emotionally. Mm. And that your invitation to your colleagues to be vulnerable and to admit that we have very strong personal feelings, feelings of pride and shame about the choices that we're making, could interfere with good order and discipline in the world's largest bureaucracy. And so how would you recommend coping with the fact that the course that you're recommending is one that presents an enormous emotional burden on people, a burden that I think morally and emotionally they would just rather leave aside and just continue to you know, do staff action papers? Um. So I, I think there's a little bit of a false choice inherent in your question in that um, the intuitive, the emotional dimension of the work that we do is always there. It's, it's not gone, it's just closeted, right, in the way that we approach the work now. And at least the, you know, the research on the brain that you know, I certainly don't know well, but I'm reading a little bit about suggests that we are actually missing out by locking it in the closet, that there's, mm. there's deep wisdom that goes untapped. Um, the second thing I would say is that the world is different now and that, you know, highly analytical, rational actor models, I think, work very well when the environment is relatively stable and known and that alternative approaches to problem solving, including human-centered design, are uh, much better suited for amb ambiguity, um, for future-focused uh, solutioning where there is not years of data to suggest you know, a, a kind of calculable solution. Um, and then, you know, I don't mean this as a cop-out, but I think we just have to get, get over it. And that um, to deny ourselves, and in a lot of ways, I'm not just talking about the people in the guts of the process who kind of work the issues every day, but it's also the citizens who are asked to vote on these incredibly important issues that are essentially being uninformed or, at wor worse, misinformed about the true cost of the decisions on the table. Um, and I don't think that's respectful of the responsibility we place in the voter's hand, um, nor do I think it will lead to, you know, truly, you know, I don't want to say the word wholesome, but like balanced solutions. So after you uh, transitioned, or some might say escaped, from the Pentagon, and you traveled around the country, around the world, you got to work in a lot of different types of organizations, startups, nonprofits, social enterprises, the whole range. Did you come across examples of organizations that you think did this sort of left brain, right brain integration well, or that did human-centered or user-centered design well? And you know, was there a lesson or two that you feel you would like to go back and tell your, your former self and DOD, this is how we should have done it? Sure. Um, you know, just as a little bit of context, one of the Re, one of the reasons, uh, the compelling reasons that I left the Pentagon was because I was beginning to hear about the new ways that people were 
coming together to solve problems um, outside of institutional affiliations, outside of pre-existing structures. I'm talking about the freelance economy, uh, the, the startup economy that was purposely forcing these collisions among disciplines. And there are you know, incubators, I think, and are, are wonderful examples of these you know, place-based centers that attract problem solvers across many disciplines. You're gonna get an engineer sitting next to an artist, sitting next to a scientist, sitting next to a business guy who come together to solve a problem, not because that's the job title that they have, because there's a deep interest in kind of coming at a problem in a new way. And they, you know, e even physically, they, tear down the walls. They work in open spaces. There's a kind of, they take collaboration to a, a radical place. Um, and I, I remember wishing when we were in the Pentagon that we weren't behind these heavy doors, you know, where you had to have a code to get in. And there wasn't really a place, a physical place, where we could talk to people who were outside of our, you know, or who were like off script, you know, who were not the usual suspects to solve the problems. And so I think that the today's uh, startup and creative economy is where I would look to first for some interesting w ideas to test in the policy world. And I know that it's happening. There are innovation labs popping up all over the government, which I, you know, can put a lot of confidence and, and hope in. I just think we have to you know, do more of it and get a little messy with it. Um, you know, not unlike in some ways what you were, how you're describing the skunk work, because that's where these new approaches are going to come from. We're going to we're going to turn to audience uh, in, in a moment, but I wanted to ask you a question, Rob, and I think Beth set it up beautifully, which is um, the way you describe the skunk works um, actually does strike me stunningly. Strikes me like it is out of the innovation economy, the sharing economy, this, this creative dominated marketplace that we're hearing about. And so uh, in preparation for meeting you, I read these 14 points in 1943. I, I have them here. If we had time, I'd read them all because it's such a fascinating historical document. But I was saying earlier, and I think if we put an Apple logo or an IDEO logo on these you know, and changed a couple of, of words, you know, anyone would believe that this had just come out of Silicon Valley, that this was like Steve Blank's latest lean startup guide. And hearing you talk about this experience with the XP80, I was thinking, what you're describing, the six months to delivery early, cost schedule performance, groundbreaking technology, that does not sound like the story of the F-35 to me. Um, <laughs> that is not the way we do it now. Uh, and, and, I, and I'm, you know, I would speculate that DOD and Congress and many others bear at least equal share of responsibility with industry for why we've gotten so far away from that. But we are pretty far away from that. So you know, what do you think happened? Uh, I mean, I believe you that this is the guiding principles that, that lead your business today. But we don't see acquisition happening like this anymore from, from the firms that have the, the long traditions of excellence in, in innovation for these, these big programs. So like, what is going on? It's a big, um, pretty broad question there. <laughs> what is going on? Um, you know, I, I'd probably come back to uh, the key points I made. You know, uh, 
one of, one of the biggest ones is, is risk. Um, you know, if you think about a lot of the things that are going on in development today, uh, a lot of the things are the, the oversight, the, you know, detailed specifications, the over-regulation, those are the types of things that, that slow the pace of, of development and innovation. And if you go back to the examples I used with, uh, with Kelly Johnson in the early days, the specifications might be one page long. Today, you know, it's about that, that deep, you know, that and can't even carry it out of here in a truckload, frankly, on these specifications. And similar, similar to the types of regulations and the amount of oversight. Um, you know, when we talk about these small teams that we had in the engineering side, there was an equally small, if not much smaller, actually, government program office to oversee uh, the contractor. And I think a lot of, the, of what happens over time is, you know, something doesn't go right. You know, whether it's technological, whether it's operational, whether it's financial or, or so forth. And so there's some type of mechanism put in place to prevent it from happening again. And so you end up in this situation where you have just so much oversight that it gets in the way of, of rapid development. Um, so that's, that's one of the many reasons. As I said, this is kind of a broad question, but those, that's one of, the thing, one of the issues that uh, I find myself um, having to protect our, our culture and our con, con ops in, of the Skunk Works, even inside our corporation. Um, because, you know, everybody wants to know what we're doing. And we have to, we have to it, it's appropriate to have some obvious amount of oversight. Uh, you know, we, I can't go out there and do something that's going to put the corporation at risk. Obviously, we don't, we don't want to be doing those kinds of things. But there's some kind of balance that we need to find that isn't in place today across DOD and the development of, of new programs. And, and the encouraging thing is I, I went through that litany of, of uh, you know, rapid capability type offices that are being set up. There's a recognition of this in DOD that we cannot continue down this path that we're on today because it fundamentally becomes unaffordable and we'll, you know, we won't be able to field systems like we need to. There are other issues that we could get into, that, but, um, but that I think is it's kind of start. the crux to the issue. Max, quick. Uh, yeah, I can answer your question in one word. Comfort. We are comfortable. And that's the problem. I can tell you right now, we wouldn't have invented, uh, we wouldn't have fielded the P-47 or the P-38 or the P-51 if our old P-40s weren't getting knocked out of the sky by the 109s and the zeros. It was that simple. The Japanese and the Germans are ruling the skies today, so we need a better plane tomorrow. And that's the problem. We were desperate, and desperate is one of the great engines of innovation. But when you are comfortable, then you can afford to solve the problem in your own way, in your own time. We keep talking about Apple, and everyone loves Apple. Ooh, Apple, Apple, Apple. What the hell has Apple done for the global war on terror? You know what Apple's great contribution has been in the last 15 years of war? Something that could put 100 songs in your pocket. That's it, the iPod. Now, 9-11, let's be honest. 9-11, global terrorism, the Middle East, all stems from the fact that the world economy is addicted to one form of energy. And if this were 1943, we would have an alternative form of energy by 1945. But we are comfortable. 
And so therefore, instead of Apple, instead of Google, instead of these geniuses that we supposedly worship with the turtleneck and the, the hmm, he's not thinking, hmm, how do I get the world economy off oil so then we can have a fair, honest policy towards the Middle East? He's thinking, how do I put 200 songs in somebody's pocket? And that's been the problem, because we are comfortable and not desperate. We are not innovating at the pace that we should well, be I, and not in the right direction. I, I appreciate you know, your answer and helping me answer that question. It's a good answer you gave, because it, it is true. We, and, and I think it goes back to the question that was after, asked of you, Max, about and your point about educating the American public. Oh, yeah, because I, the public yeah. fundamentally does not recognize the potential threats that we face in the country. I guarantee you, if today RF-15s were being knocked out of the sky in a large state-on-state -state war, mm -hmm. trust me, we would have the best planes the universe has ever seen tomorrow. And recognizing that the lead time in getting airplanes right. that, you know, we will, would be, yeah. when we have those today, but, you know, uh, Against some of the threats we will face, the F-15s and other fourth-generation airplanes, are you know, including airplanes Lockheed Martin builds, are are not going to be right. what we need for the future. That's why we're developing airplanes like F-22s and F-35s and so forth. But generally, the American public is not aware. No, and we would never have gone to, to the moon point. if it wasn't for Sputnik. So, Steve, do you have a video? Please. <laughs> I've, I've been taught to wait. Thank you. I'm Steve Grundman. I'm the Lund Fellow here at the Atlanta Council. Uh, my question is for Rob. The proposition uh, that Max and Beth, or at least my form for the purpose of my question, of the propositions that Max and Beth have put before us is that uh, these policy and other of their ilk problems uh, that we have become accustomed, maybe comfortable, addressing with analysis, with the rational actor model, are tractable by a, an, an, an artistic approach or a humanist approach. Mm. Um, and my question to Rob is, can you, can you see that? You, you gave us some testimonials of, of technical excellence and, and at least uh, indications that you have seen leadership excellence. In, your, in those experiences, do you see evidence uh, that great engineers or great leaders are actually drawing on a well of artistic or humanist in addition, perhaps, to as a complement to their technical, analytical um, capabilities or acumen, what have you? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I, I would say the short answer to the question is yes. But um, you know, one, one of the things that um, I've learned dealing with engineers, a lot of times they're looking very specifically at that technical solution. But one of the things we've, we've worked hard anytime you're in innovation arena is, you know, there's a tremendous number of ideas and you can't chase all of them and expect to, uh, to succeed on all of them. So you, you kind of need to bring in a uh, thought process beyond the, the pure technical to determine <coughs> where in fact are we going. So. You know, that's one of the challenges we have today is we, we make investments in various types of technologies is where is, where is the U.S. government going exactly on defense of the nation? I'm, sp I'm speaking specifically in the area of national defense and, and the Department of Defense. In fact, we're going to hear later from mm -hmm. Secretary Work who will talk about the third offset as an example of, of one of the strategies on where the nation is heading. 
But the more that we can bring in a broader thought to, to uh, determining what is it we're actually trying to accomplish. The earlier panel talked about what is the problem. And you know, I think in order to, to be successful in answering the, the question, you need to be able to define the problem well. And in an environment that we live in today where Frankly, the, the budget is not realistically there to recapitalize our entire force structure across DOD. Um, at least that's my personal view. We have to have a much more focused vision um, on what the country is trying to accomplish in terms of national defense. And I think to that point, it, it does require a much broader level of thinking than, than what we have within the pure technology community. That answer you sure touches on your question, sir. On the aisle, please. Yes, uh, Randall Fort with Raytheon, uh, Mr. Weiss. I'd just like to see if you could draw out a little bit. Um, you know, this on this issue of risk aversion. You could have talked about the Cage Four system back in the early '60s. Twelve times, twelve times in a row, it failed. We splashed twelve in a row. It didn't go up until thirteen. Can you imagine today? Twelve failures in a row. A single failure, and you're guaranteed an inquisition in the press and on the hill. Guaranteed. One failure, and and it's death. Right? You one right. program failure, and your your program's cut. So you talked about a, a, a lot of things that are, are um, possibilities, but could you be a little more specific? Do we need a special track for IT? Do we need to take SAP um, type authorities and make them more general? It is a matter of leadership. What, what will recapture this innovation spirit and dynamism that you've talked about and has proven, proven itself historically to work? What do we need to do to operationalize that so that we don't take a biblical generation or 10 to 15 Moore's Law cycles to produce enough 15? Right, no, it's a great point, and, and that's, you've, you've uh, articulated the problem extremely well. That's exactly where, we're, where we've been in the past, where we would take these risks. We'd be, you know, obviously we never want to lose systems or lose human life, but today we have zero tolerance for losing a system or, or you know, uh, certainly a, a pilot's life in the testing of an aircraft. But if you go back to Kelly Johnson's era, you know, it was right after World War II, I mean, how many of the hundred thousands of people that were being lost per day? So there was a much different risk tolerance, I think, mm -hmm. across the entire globe at that time than we have today. I think another aspect is, is certainly the media cycle. And anytime there's, there's a mistake of some kind in the development of a system, it makes great press. So, um, you know, we have to, I mean, that is, I think, where some of the leadership uh, is required to continue to focus on the course and what we're trying to accomplish needs, needs to come into play. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that part of the issue, as I said earlier, when we create, um, you know, organizations that are meant to prevent uh, one of these situations forth, um, you know, those organizations, they, they fundamentally never go away. And you only add to those organizations. So those times, just some, just not focusing on the government. But certainly there are, that exists inside the government. It exists inside industry as well. And I think until we come to grips with um, where real value is being added to the development cycle, where appropriate amount of oversight and regulation is 
is define where we can define where that level is, and where we take the rest of it and we say it's time for these people and these processes and these organizations to the organization. I think we're gonna we're gonna have a hard time getting getting through this uh, risk aversion we have across the uh, nation. Can I can I add a odd thought? Sorry, Josh, um, a half baked thought in that the you know this. The conversation is focused um, very much on defense at the moment. Um, but I'm recalling a statistic uh, that was mentioned this morning about the thousands, the tens of thousands of people that die every year in car crashes. Um, not that that's the domain of the Department of Defense, but in thinking about um, how we might reorient a conversation about what are truly risks to humans that might eventually shift dollars in that direction. I'm thinking of pandemics um, where, you know, that don't get half, you know, any fraction of the, mo the money that goes to the Department of Defense. I mean, what if the question about where and how to innovate takes place at that level up here, um, you know, in addition, I just want to make sure that the conversation That's is not half-baked. That is a thoroughly baked idea. Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a great it's point, frankly. Yeah, and, so we, and, you know, so we're, we're at the five-minute mark, so we need, or even less than that. So this is the speed round for the questions and the answers. Oh. <laughs> I have a sh short question. I have a short question. Uh, Chris Anderson, AWPS. Um, so about two years ago, um, Lockheed Martin announced a compact fusion reactor and it was a Skunk Works uh, announcement through Aviation Week. So I'm just wondering where that is. No, it's a great question. And, and we, uh, we have actually are in investing in appropriate amount of investment in that technology right now. Uh, this is a great example of organizations that oversee risk. You know, that's their job. And sometimes, you know, you, I, we like to joke about elevate the level of the temperature. Say Central Florida max. You could do a whole panel just talking about the path from SNL to the Atlantic Council. I think that'd be <laughs> fascinating. But um, you talked about necessity being the mother of invention, right? Mm -hmm. And how that we do need to find some national will to increase investments in federal R&D so that we can develop the next great innovations out of Skunk Works and propel our economy forward for the next couple of decades. What, how do we do it? I mean, honestly, in a perfect world, you would invent something called the Department of Connections. And the Department of Connections would do nothing but try to connect seemingly completely different, completely isolated points of light. For example, we're talking about his fusion reactor. OK, I'm young enough to remember the 1990s, first recession. Congress says, well, we're not going to spend money on fusion research. And he would be talking right now about Gen 2 or Gen 3 of the microfusion reactor. Because it wasn't, nobody saw it as something necessary and imminent. But what if we had understood, hey, this is the path away from, God forbid, a Middle Eastern oil-fueled terrorist attack on American soil? Nobody's making those connections. Nobody's making connect connections between, say, an outbreak in Central Africa and a bioterror attack right here at home. And we used to be excellent at that. And this is something we need to understand. There is no Department of Defense. The Department of Defense is the Department of America. Everything flows into national defense. And we got that in World War II. Education, infrastructure, everything. Everything had to do with it. Nowadays, everybody is such a specialist that there are no more general practitioners. So I would encourage a new thought process of trying 
to identify those connections and trying to be creative and trying to be big picture the way we used to be. Max, I would endorse your proposal for a Department of Connections, and I might call it the Atlantic Council. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, on this side, any questions over here or over? Yes, sir, in the back there, please. Uh, yeah, my name is Dimitri. I'm independent. Thank you very much. Interesting discussion. I just wanted to mention there was a top 100 song. I don't know if, if you remember Alan Jackson. He said, where were you when the world stopped turning? I thought there was a lot of terrible country songs about 9-11. Have you had an initial think, plasma flow? I think we'll keep yeah. it. We'll keep it moving. Mm -hmm. Sorry about that. Yes, um, yes sir, in the front row crisis and the next thing to do it is international trade and international institutions. Over the last 50 years, exports went up ten, tenfold, GDP grew fourfold. So the question is what will happen with exports in the next 50 years? And I think this goes back to the 14%, 86% discussion we had earlier. We'll continue to innovate and supply innovative products, but where is the demand going to come from? And it's going to come from the 86%, I think. So I think the strategy should be... It's the only one I've heard that dealt with what happens to our veterans because wouldn't that be nice if we actually cared we've done such a good job of bringing visual art into the global strategy forum this year i think maybe we need to have a country western concert <laughs> next year so we can really get at these <laughs> these publics across the nation that need to be engaged and back max do you sing at all well you know what how about this we talked about war bonds how many people have heard of patriot bonds show of hands this is the Atlantic Council. This is some of the smartest people in the country. Nobody's heard of Patriot Bonds. They came back right after 9-11. We tried to introduce war bonds back again, but there was no speeches. And where were the war bond drives? Had we had war bond drives, had the public engaged once again, maybe we wouldn't be crushed under the kind of war debt that we are now. Patriot Bonds, look them up. Oh, and by the way, I, I want to apologize about Apple and Google, what I said about them not contributing to the war effort. They have. We just had a SOCOM strategy session where we learned about how uh, ISIS and other terrorist groups are using iPads and Google Earth to target mortars more effectively. So sorry, Apple and Google, I didn't mean to affect you. Uh, you are affecting the war effort. Thank you. I was relieved you didn't bring up encryption, but now we have you know, mortar targeting. So okay, yes. what are you going to do? Do we have time for one more or two more questions? If there are any, one more question from? She raised her hand. Ma'am, please, yes. Hey, Ellen Scholl, I'm with the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, and I just wanted to go back to this idea of empathy, because I think that that really struck a chord with me amid a, um, an election cycle that is seemingly devoid of it. So I was wondering how you inculcate empathy into the decision-making process in the policy space if perhaps we also have a lack of it just in the general public space. And I'm thinking a lot of the types of entertainment that we consume, the speed of the news cycle and rapid and short bits that don't really give time both for reflection and actually empathizing with someone or something else. And instead, we tend to sort of demonize the other or categorize. So if you're going to build it into policy making, do we need to think about how to sort of reinvigorate empathy at a general public person to person level first? Well, Beth, you're the perfect person to answer I'll, that. I'll, yeah, yeah, I'll go take for a it. swipe at it, but yeah. um, there's, a, there's a lot of what I'm about to say that um, I was reminded of in your remarks, uh, Max. Um, so one, I, I believe that empathy can be taught, and there are organizations um, doing this now. Ashoka 
which is across the river, the largest global organization supporting social entrepreneurs, has put empathy at the core of its programming to teach um, students, you know, how to put themselves into the shoes of someone else. It is a practicable um, skill. Uh, secondly, there's a connection here at the Atlantic Council as well with one of the senior fellows uh, with, through the establishment of something called the Center for Empathy and International uh, Affairs. I'm forgetting the acronym, but um, you know, work being done, uh, scholarly work, uh, and applied work on how and where empathy can be um, at, you know, put on the table along with other approaches to policymaking. Uh, and then one more thing I'll just add is that one of the reasons that I think we're hearing more about empathy in more official spaces um, is because we innately feel the lack of it. And partly it's because of the divisions that we see between Americans, but also between Americans and other people around the world on television. Um, and one solution to that, I think, is really putting real effort behind diversity initiatives is that if our government and our corporations do not reflect the population of the United States um, or the 86%, if, if our ability to connect with and know um, the people, say in a development context that we are trying to serve, we will fail. We will just fail. Um, and uh, so, th so those are three ideas about how you can take that kind of lofty concept and actually put it into play. I think you can also connect empathy to national security. I mean, if you, look, if you look at a country that was once our deadliest enemy and now one of our best friends, it's Germany. And you look at the policy after World War I where the policy was punish them, make them suffer, hurt them for what they did. Well, the result was 20 years later, their children came back to try to kill us. And then in 1945, we said no. We need to bind them up, we need to protect them, we need to take care of them, we need to build them. And so therefore, their children will grow up as our friends and not our enemies. We need to celebrate our wins. The same thing with Japan, the same thing with Korea. You know, we have to understand that when we show empathy to children, they grow up to become adults who look at us as friends and not that cycle of revenge that we've been so good at in the last, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years. And on that uplifting note, we have to draw this to a close. Thank you. Please join me in thanking three fantastic panelists. Once again, a really uh, great panel, and I think really in keeping with our themes today. I hope you really enjoyed not only the diversity of views, uh, but some really, I think, uh, new ideas uh, for us to be thinking about. Uh, we're going to take about a 10-minute break, but wait, there's more. Uh, I was just down in the lobby. Uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob Bork is here, uh, and he'll be having a conversation with August Cole about the use of narrative and how he's thinking about the third offset. Some of you may know what that is. Some of you may not. Some of you want to know what that is. And that's what they're going to be talking about. So please come back in 10 minutes so you can listen in on that conversation. And more importantly, so you can take part in that conversation uh, as they reach out to the audience for comments uh, and questions. Uh, we'll ring that uh, crazy triangle out in the lobby when it's time for you all to come back. Thanks again.